Break out your wireframes and heat up those Git repos. We're ready to tackle topics ranging from accessibility to front-end design, user experience, and beyond. You're listening to the Drunken UX Podcast with your hosts, Michael Feenan and Aaron Hill. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is the season four premiere of the Drunken UX Podcast. I'm glad you're here, and I am your happy scotchy host michael feenan i'm also glad you're here actually i think i'm i'm more glad that you're here because i'm your other other host aaron how you doing michael i'm doing why why aren't you as glad as i am um for our guests to be here because uh i i really at the end of the day when you've got a beard like this it's just to hide all the sadness in my soul (laughs) it's it's the way i hide uh hide my pain (laughs) It's not that I'm not as as glad. It's just that I'm incapable <laughs> of feeling that amount of glad. <laughs> Folks, if you would uh, like to check us out, be sure to go find us on Twitter or Facebook at slash Drunken UX. You can also check us out on Instagram. That is at slash Drunken UX podcast. If you want to chat with us anytime, go by Discord. You can find us at drunkenux.com slash Discord. That will get you all of the invitey stuff that will drop you into that channel. If you're enjoying the show, be sure to run by our sponsors over at New Cloud. You can check them out, drunkenux.com, or I'm sorry, newcloud.com slash drunkenux. See, God, I'm starting off already backwards. This is uh, not a, not not my best foot forward. I apologize. Um, That's nucloud.com slash drunkenux. Ah, a lot of words, a whole lot of words, man. Many words. Let's see. I'm drinking tonight. I was going to bring up some really, really special scotch. And because I thought it's season four premiere, I thought that would be worth it. And I just didn't feel like it, so I apologize. Uh, so I'm drinking Lagavulin 16 tonight. Great fun. I love... I bottle that upstairs. I, I, I don't drink a lot of Isla, but I love Lagavulin 16. You get all that smokiness without the really you know, dense medicinal flavor, that iodine flavor that comes out of an Ardbeg or uh, mm-hmm. uh, Laphroaig or, or some of these, Bowmore. Bowmore isn't quite as bad um, about it. This is just, I'm I'm Nick Offerman, man. I, I'm drinking <laughs> Campfire. My The funny part was before we started recording, I had started myself a glass, I went and took a sip of it, and in my brain I'm like, I'm drinking scotch. And in my mouth it went, yeah, you're drinking scotch, but you forgot you poured it. Lagavulin, and it was like a a moment. I had a moment there where it it punched me in the face a little bit. <laughs> I, I I've heard it described as smoky band aids. Um, I drink it anyways. It's there. It's you know if if I had to say I I I I get the band aid thing because the iodine content in this is is lower and, mm. and the phenols are lower. It doesn't have that really strong medicine flavor. In fact, if I was to categorize it, it's maybe more of a pine flavor to me. Hmm. Not like... I'll have to look for that next time. Not a gin flavor, mind you, but there's right. just that sort of like evergreen tree kind of uh, backing to that smoke that comes through. But, okay. Yeah, I, I quite enjoy it. I've almost finished this bottle. I'm not going to promise to finish the bottle tonight because I want to finish the episode, so we'll... <laughs> keep an eye on that what do you got over there i have the um i brought out the the balvenie american oak it's pretty good 
I think I still like the Doublewood better, but this one's not bad. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, uh, Balvany was is known for that Doublewood, and the American mm-hmm. Oak almost feels like a lie a little bit for them. <laughs> so joining us this evening, we're kicking off uh, this uh, this 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 year, this season, year end season, because that's the way our seasons work. <laughs> I had all of these little uh, uh, jokes and and things about it. Uh, we're we're talking all about Babel. Uh, and the reason that I made those jokes is because Babel is all about languages and all about saying things in different ways. Um, but I'm not going to make those jokes because I, you might say that we're babbling about Babel. Yeah. See, that was one of them. And I didn't feel good about (laughs) saying that on air. I'm glad you did. Oh, is that why, that way you crossed it off on the notes? Yes. I I couldn't bring myself to make that, that, uh, that joke. (laughs) That's what I'm here for, Michael. (laughs) The fall guy. Is that, uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, so, to that end, uh, we brought in a special guest for you to kick off the season who can help talk not just to you about it, but to us as well uh, about it. Uh, Curtis Rainbolt Green is coming to us over from the wild land of the Pacific time zone for a change. I, we don't go west very often, as, as it occurs to me. Um, he is the senior software engineer over at Media Arts Lab. Curtis, thanks for stopping in. I know you love Babel, you love Ruby, um, you're getting into a new language, right, uh, that we were talking about, Elixir. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me on. It's it's a pleasure. Uh, I'm excited to talk about this sort of stuff. It's it's kind of my passion, uh, language design, that is, in general. Yeah. Um, I, I still consider, I consider myself an auteur uh, of it, mm. and, and Babel is a sort of like a, a passion of mine. In terms of uh, what it does. You're, you're farther along than me then, because I wouldn't even say that about anything I do, quite frankly. <laughs> I'm one of those folks that I muddle along, and I just am really... My my degree is in theater, so acting is kind of what I do best. So I just act like <laughs> I know what I'm doing most of the time. I, I feel that. Uh, look, my, my, you know, my first language ever was a thing called mush code. Have y'all, either of y'all heard of that? I have not Mush heard of that. Code? Okay, all right. This is gonna. This is, I won't go on the huge tangent, but like, okay, in the eighties, there was a type of game, a genre of yeah, game yeah, called mush. Okay. Oh, mushes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, muds and mushes. Okay, okay. Yeah. So the the link the servers themselves were C or Java, right? One of those two, right? But mm-hmm. they had built-in domain languages uh, that players could write and execute okay. on the machine. Uh, they oh, were right. I remember those. Yeah, they were terrible. Yeah. So, like, they had a couple of incredibly strange qualities. First of all, they were they were syntactically uh, they were as expression. So, um, if you yeah. know what that means, it usually is uh, a parenthesis followed by a word, uh, mm. and then followed by multiple things. So, like, let's say you have a function called add, and it takes two numbers. You would have open parentheses, add space. One space two close parentheses. Mm-hmm. That's called an S expression. That type of syntax. Lisps have S expression. Mm-hmm. Um, a syntax generally. They were lisps, strangely enough. Uh, mm-hmm. But they had other oddities, like you couldn't define variables except for uh, a list of sixteen registers. So it was <laughs> old school in that regard, right? That you had to you manipulate these registers. No white space was allowed. <laughs> so yeah, you couldn't do no new lines. It's all one line, um, and a whole host of other just strange things. Oh, uh, it also had the strange JavaScript-like uh, oddity of 
if something was malformed about the syntax, it just treated that bit as a string. So if you wrote something wrong, that chunk of code would just be considered a string. So like, hmm. if you had uh, a bunch of code to determine how to get your first and last name, but that code was malformed, that was now your first name. <laughs> that code chunk of code was now your first name. It was really bad. So when hmm. I got writing real languages, right, like these professional languages, Ruby, uh, Haskell, Erlang, right, uh, it was like, oh wow, you can, you don't have to like have an editor uncompact the code before you edit it. So language design just became something I loved. I don't remember writing mush scripts, but I remember using them, or or maybe I don't know if it was mush or mud, but I I remember playing in muds with my friends and. We uh, one of them had like a like macros or something that they would do to um, like just do farming and stuff. Yeah, so that's that that was the other just strange oddity of that genre is um, you would also be encouraged to write code outside to do the game for you. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas in modern game development or modern gameplay, that's strictly cheating. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it was it was a strange world that I that I quote unquote grew up in. Yeah, so let's use that as a jumping off point because so tonight we're talking about Babel and, and what it does and, and why you should care about it and, and the role that it plays in your tool chains. And I think while probably a lot of people, regardless of their expertise level, have probably heard of it, I'm not going to guarantee that most folks understand what it really is. And I fell into that camp several years ago when we first started playing with tool chains and, and build processes. I remember all of this like, Hearing these words, Babel, Gulp, Yarn, Webpack, or Rollup, or Parcel, or some of these, and I, I knew they were things, and I knew they interacted, but I had no clue really what they did until I spent a lot of time with them. So, I mean, what is Babel itself? Like, how would you describe it to somebody who hasn't used it? Sure, but before I do, I would love to hear what each of you think Babel is. <laughs> what I... do you think it does? Because so the, the reason I ask is because it's a, a very multifaceted tool yeah. that most people don't even use ten percent of. So what do you what do you use it for? I, I think there's a lot of wait. Can I can I go first because I'm probably wrong. No, no, yeah, go <laughs> ahead by all means. Okay, you're the fall guy. So... Remember, <laughs> you can be incrementally better than me. Um, I've never intentionally used it, but I've worked on things that used it, and the explanation that I was given was that it like access kind of like a Rosetta stone for different JavaScript things like TypeScript, ES6, etc. Uh but I have no idea how. <laughs> okay. That's, it's not a real bad description that, of it. That is actually a very good description. <laughs> yes. That is I'll, I'll I have <laughs> used the words and I, I fell upwards. <laughs> I use them pretty interchangeably whether it's cuz I don't really know like I say transpiler. I don't know that that's an, a a real word or it's one that we've just made up. <laughs> Some people say transcompiler. I know that, and but Aaron, you're definitely right in terms of its job is to take the stuff you've written and rewrite it. That's what Babel does okay. ultimately. Uh, so uh, yeah, transpiler is a word. Transcompiler is also the same word. They're synonyms, and it kind of relates to the idea of compilers. Most people do exactly as y'all have done. Or they just they don't even interact with it. It's part of their build chain. Maybe someone set up a webpack that has it, or like 
Maybe they're interacting with a library that uses it to build. It's always the thing somebody else set up for you. <laughs> yeah, it, it, in many cases, it's described as a build tool, right? So it is, by definition, two things. Uh, a sys compiler and a trans compiler. And those the, the first bits of those words are pretty important. Uh, they're the Latin words sys and trans, and that mean the same side and across, like transatlantic mm -hmm. or a cistern, for example. The, the tool itself can be can be utilized in both ways, and those are two different um, diametrically opposed ideas, right? Uh, sys compiler and trans compiler. So I'll give you an example of like when it's a sys compiler. So a sys compiler is something that takes source code, right, and generates a compatible source code on the other uh, in the, in the uh, copy process, right? So I'll give you an easiest example of a sys compiler you've ever used. It's the command line tool CP, right? Okay. It's completely equivalent, right? Hopefully. <laughs> if you're, unless your CP is, is broken. It's, in fact, the file you come out of it is, is uh, equivalent to what you in it. Uh, another good one is ESLint. Oh, I've used that. Just a tool that, yeah, okay. Uh, or any other linting tool that you've used. It reads the source code. And if you're like using the fixed mode, right, it outputs the source code that's compatible. Uh, another popular example of a sys compiler, Uglifier, or any other minification process, right? The code is compatible with what you put in. It's not any, it's, it's different in maybe uh, the structure, or it may be missing some pieces, but it is supposed to be the same program. Parity is a word that I think gets thrown around a lot. Okay. Like the code has parity with what went into it. Yes, and, and in fact, that is that is a, a, a I'll come to that as a useful point. Transcompiler, however, is really fun concept, right? So the idea is that you don't have that parity, and specifically, the source code that you put in will be fundamentally incompatible with the source code. Yeah. Now that doesn't mean that you lose parity. In fact, you may retain parity. You might gain new ability. You might lose some ability. Or it might actually function the same, but it's not the same language, right? You can't read that file with the same interpreter as what it went. So, um, Babel, that, that's all like really high fancy level stuff, but, but like in the, the use case for Babel, the reason why Babel exists is it was the original use case was was a because it was called six to five, and its original use was transcompiling ES six to ES five. ES standing okay. for ECMAScript, the official JavaScript standard uh, that kind of deals with the idea of a web, right? People wanted to use new features that were going to come out a newer version of the ECMAScript specification six. In their modern web applications, in their Safaris, in their, uh, well, at the time, Opera, in their Internet Explorer uh, 6, 5, 10, right? But they didn't want to have to manually write the code that would allow them to run on these different Especially in certain cases where, say, WebKit and Blink would have a, a similar API for a, a feature. But the actual like arguments for say a function would be flipped. How do you 
deal with that. Like that becomes a really complicated problem to deal with. jQuery, for example, uh, as from your vanilla JS episode, was a was one way people handled this. So originally, it was all about turning a newer source code into older source code or older uh, APIs. So if I throw the word polyfill out there, that might be something maybe folks have heard of or or used even in some cases where sometimes we think about these things in those terms where, oh, browser X, i.e. 11, for instance, doesn't support you know this feature I need, so I will use a polyfill, which is basically a function that you can include in your JavaScript that makes that function exist. It, it duplicates the functionality, but in a way that is compatible with that particular browser. Is that fair for me to kind of compare sort of what some of it does? Sim you might say so. A transcompiler would include a polyfill library as part of its process if you wanted it. For example, there's a there are one of the one of the Babel specific libraries is Babel Polyfill, which does exactly that. As it's reading your original source code that uses the fancy new flat map and or the flatten function for array or the new weak map and map, uh, as it reads your source code, the output source code includes polyfills in case the library doesn't have them. Babel can actually read what you've written and decide what to actually include as part of uh, the output. So let's, uh, is it fair to, for me to sort of qualify this as, you know, Babel is all about backwards compatibility, basically. Letting you write current code that we know will work regardless of what browser the user is, is implementing in that case. Originally, yes. And that's why it was called 6 to 5. But when it changed its name and largely changed hands uh, to its current owners, um, it, it grew into a sort of like a different beast, right? Because maybe you don't want to deal with Internet Explorer 5. This was around the time that people started being able to drop the lower Internet Explorer versions, right? So you don't really want to spend the extra 20 seconds compiling for a target that you're never going to generate for, right? So what Babel, the Babel team did is they built a tool that is effectively... It reads source code. It's, it's called an AST to AST transformer. Uh, an AST stands for abstract syntax tree. It's the programmatic code version or mm, data version of what your source code actually is, right? Uh, this character... Like a, a DOM for, for code, basically. Absolutely. Absolutely. The same idea, right? Um, in that they're both, they're also just both trees with nodes, right? Uh, oh, this character followed by this character. In the context of this, it's actually a function call in the context of it. So, right, well, that's all part of the AST. Um, they built an engine for reading source codes, turning it into an AST, an abstract syntax tree, and then outputting mm -hmm. an abstract syntax tree to source, right? And then all of the transformations that they wanted, so like, oh, adding the new array functions or... Um, adding support for uh, uh, the double question mark operator or the safety navigator operator. Uh, those were plugins into the Babel engine. And that's where it got real crazy. Because suddenly, you could ship an NPM package that was a Babel plugin 
that could do whatever you wanted to the source code as it was being transformed into what you wanted. So I'll give you a good example of this, right? So in my uh, web applications, I have a, a really fun Babel plugin called Annotate Source Code. So have you ever written a console log inside of a function and you're just like, oh, yeah. here, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and then you don't think about have it. Have I ever written a console log? <laughs> <laughs> it's like 80% of what okay. I do. <laughs> you, you're just so angry about the bug, you just took, you're just like, here, and then you run your code and then you see in your log file the word here and you're like, wait a minute, okay, I don't know where that is. Right, like, that doesn't tell me anything. <laughs> this plugin is called Babel Annotate Log. And what it does is it prefixes your log line with all the functions that it's nested in. So you can see a breadcrumb of all the functions that it was called under. And that's or, just... Or a stack trace, right? Yeah, like a, yeah. That sounds like a stack trace. A very minimal version of it, but yes, right? A live one, right? And that's just part of the transformation process. Um, you can do minification. You can do uh, adding new features. You can create an entirely new language with Babel <laughs> that just happens to come out to JavaScript. And this... Wow. This isn't even like a, a a Babel or JavaScript thing. The earliest form of uh, transcompiler was called Conv86. So Intel in the 80s, uh, 1978, they had just released a new version of their assembly language called 8086. Mm. And they had noticed, they realized that like, okay, we've sold everybody on this 8080 and 8085. And 8086 is real different. And it's much better, so we want people to use it. So they basically made this program to convert old 8080 and 8085 to 8086. So the original transcompiler, A, wasn't called the transcompiler, uh, and B, was actually about upgrading your code rather than D, um, downgrading the code for targets, right? Interesting. So let's uh, back up here for just a second. Because I want to lean on something you you said, but I want to make sure that it resonates. I guess talking about six to five, ES six is a phrase that I think people will hear from time to time when looking at JavaScript or ES twenty fifteen in some cases, which is the same thing. Um, but when it comes to JavaScript, um, I think there's a a lot of confusion still because of the relationship between what we call ECMAScript and JavaScript and, and how those two things relate. So I want to take a second and just kind of explain that, I guess, uh, so that folks understand like what, what we're talking, not just what we're talking about, but what it is when they see it to happening in their code. And, and when they see like, cause I think it's, it's in one of the Babel config settings, you can set like the, the level of compatibility you want. Do you want it to be ES6 or ES7? When we talk about JavaScript in particular, JavaScript is an implementation of the ECMAScript standard. Okay. Ec so there's a, a company literally called ECMA, ECMA Industries, I believe is their, is their name, and they come out with this standard, and they say this is the way a language should work for this. And JavaScript is the language that implements that standard, yes. which was fine for a lot of years because the internet moved slowly back in, you know, the dark ages of 2003. <laughs> when we got up to what we call uh, ES 2015 or ES6, that represented a 
huge update to the JavaScript standard. So I love talking about jQuery in these contexts because part of the reason why I say jQuery existed, and, and uh, Curtis, you alluded to it as well, you know, jQuery came out because people wanted to do more. They wanted to do things that JavaScript couldn't do consistently. And so jQuery came out and said, hey, we've solved all these problems. Yes. Load our library and you can use our functions and we promise you we've done all the work in the background to make sure that it works the same on the different browsers and gives you all of these new things. So what has happened is since then, ECMA industry said, oh crap, we need to do better at this. So ES6 came out, which represented this giant jump from ES5. And from that point forward, we're now, we now have annual releases. Every year in June, ECMA releases an update to that spec that has a few new features. Well, yeah, I mean, it has a lot of new features, a few that people will care about. Yeah. And so that's where all of these numbers come in. The reason I think ES2015 and ES6 get confused is mostly because that was the year of sort of that big jump to this new process. Is that fair for me? And, and I, I would, the only thing I would add to that is that one of the bigger, there were, there were two big uh, inflection or catalysts for this, like this change. So jQuery covered the API layer, right? Uh, how does this function get called? Uh, what does this function do? The normalization of that, right? Across browsers. But what it couldn't do was really crazy stuff like scope or syntax changes, right? It it can't right. modify your it can't like do this sort of thing in on the runtime. That'd be that'd be very expensive. So, like I think an example of that, just to give people a comparison, right, would be something simple like the difference between let and ver. Yes. or the inclusion like, of const. <laughs> yes, or const. Yeah, that's not something because it's syntactical. It's it's idiomatic. Yes. To, I I love now that I have got this word cooked into me. I love using that word idiomatic. Because it's mm -hmm. a part of the language, there's not a way to fake it, so to speak. Absolutely. Um, uh, or, or, or faking it is significantly a lot more code than you want to do in something like jQuery. Um, another good example of this is arrow functions, right? So they are what right. are considered closures. Uh, mm -hmm. So this doesn't apply inside of an arrow function the way you'd expect it to. An, an arrow function, if you see code where it's like parentheses equals and then right carrot, it's literally like a, or sometimes people call them fat arrows. Yes, yeah. I think in, that was in early, early terminology. Yeah. In, in Ruby, it's minus greater than, and I like to call it stabby syntax. <laughs> stabby syntax. I love it. I'm going to use that from now on. That's my new word, stabby syntax. Um, so the other, other situations were uh, other syntax changes, like what are called t uh, tag template literals. So you probably use this, uh, the backtick character, followed by whatever you want, followed by a backtick character, acts kind of like quotation marks to create a string, but you can put returns in them. Uh, you can put whatever you want in them. Um, those you cannot, like you can't polyfill those with jQuery. So they needed tooling to do this. In addition, I would say that ES6 also, was the, one of the catalysts for ES6 uh, was the fact that ECMAScript itself actually describes browser-like features and how things behave in browsers, which gets real weird when you're a person who maintains and or runs Node.js, which has nothing to do with the browser. 
right? right. So like, what do you, you know, okay, so now ECMAScript is like kind of like encouraged, hey, we have more than just browsers to think about now. So let's talk a little bit about uh, sort of how this fits into things, right? Because we we started off by saying, or at least I started off by saying, you know, I I knew this word, I knew this name alongside a lot of other names, Webpack, Parcel, Yarn, Gulp, all of these things. How does Babel differentiate itself from the other tools that will often be used with it? So it draws a very thick line into the sand about like what it stops caring about, and that is the require, the import statement of uh, of this thing, how it resolves it. Um, there are, amusingly, there are Babel plugins for doing uh, different kinds of uh, mod, what are called module resolution algorithms, which is to say, when you say, hey, require Uglify, you and I know that comes from node module slash Uglify slash index.js, right? But how does a machine know that, right? So Babel doesn't do anything like that. It doesn't actually dip into the actual requirements. It technically could. Uh, but that's where it kind of draws their their the line in the sand. So that's where you need tools like Webpack, Rollup, or Parcel because they're about bundling your code together, usually one or more files, right? So they yeah. dig in and they use Babel to read the code. Uh, the Babel loader, for example, a Webpack is what you use to read um, code through the Babel library for all your fancy plugins and things like that. And something like gulp is your task runner that is the thing that sits in your build process that says go run all of these things go execute all of these different tools or grunt grunt is another one that uh, that some folks will be using so comp- in the space of babel what are some of like the best competitors cuz i know of course babel's been around forever it's really the gold standard at this point but um, there are some other tools just like um, for instance if you're using a static site generator you know you're going to know names like Jekyll or Leventy but there are a lot like Bridgetown that is a Ruby based static site generator that is also in that space what other names might people come across like Babel when looking at something like a transponder? Oh, actually, this is a, a huge contention of mine. There is none. There are no modern <laughs> language. And, and it's, it's I actually am kind of sad about it. So in, in, in JavaScript, uh, it just doesn't exist anymore. Um, you kind of had stuff like uh, Google's Clojure compiler. Uh, but that was like a very specific idea of what like they wanted to like minify as well as catch certain build issues um and remove dead code right which all of which you can do with babel right so it's like kind of like a static package of babel's abilities it's just it's it's an oddity and i think it's largely because of how ubiquitous javascript is that it even exists um one of the there's this great article out there or not article uh essay called the lisps curse and one of the the, the thesis of this essay is that uh, one of the reasons why Lisp didn't do well in, uh, in the same way other languages did is because you could fundamentally change how the language worked inside of the language itself. And when you start to hmm. tell developers, hey, 
I can't think of another language that does that. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. When you, when you tell programmers that they have more space to play in, they will play in that space. And it got mm-hmm. really hard for two Lisp programs to work together as libraries, right, of each other, because they fundamentally had different ideas. Like maybe uh, my language doesn't. Uh, so uh, there's a language called IO, and uh, it had this exact problem where you could fundamentally change the language. And um, it did not have a syntax literal for dictionary. Uh, so for those of you who don't know, a syntax literal is the literal thing you type for the syntax. So for example, uh, in JavaScript, uh, to make an array, you open a square bracket and you put items separate by commas, and then you do a close bracket, right? The idea of putting those brackets with commas between each item is a syntax literal. The in-memory of representation of that is nothing like that, right? IO didn't have a syntax literal for dictionaries or objects in JavaScript. You could make objects in memory, but there was no syntax literal for it. So every IO developer made their own syntax in IO for that. And they were all slightly different, which, as you can imagine, made importing libraries just impossible, which is why no one uses IO. Um, this is called the Lisp curse, right? Somehow, Babel has avoided <laughs> this altogether. You just don't have that problem with Babel. But it still allows for the positives. Okay, uh, this is for the old heads out there. There used to be a thing called CopyScript. <laughs> Does anybody remember CopyScript? You may still. Do you, I remember do you know? Do you know where CopyScript originated? Yeah, uh, I remember the guy's name. Jay. Can't, I, I can't remember where I, though. The New York Times uh, food section. That's right. Yeah, I I actually interviewed there years ago. Um, <laughs> yeah. So. They wanted. I'm not a fan of. They wrote. They they wanted a, this language that was like JavaScript that turned into JavaScript, and they wrote mm-hmm. a compiler for it to do this. So it's kind of like CoffeeScript and TypeScript, the TSC compiler and the CoffeeScript compiler. They're kind of competitors to Babel, but they do very specific things, right? Like they're not tech. They're not really competitors. They don't do what you you're talking about. Um. Because they turn TypeScript to JavaScript, right? At some point, this is before Promises and Async Await was available. Uh, there was an in, a engineer who wanted to add Async Await to CopyScript. And the maintainer said, no, I, I don't like this idea of top of the Async Await words, keywords. Promises are how I want to do things. And he's like, if you want me to add it, I'm going to need you to like show me that it's valuable. So the person that engineer then decided, okay, this is worth my time. He wrote his own compiler for CoffeeScript called Iced Coffee, right? And then he published it, and he tried to get people to use it so that they could try out async await. This is before it was like a everybody does this, right? And no one would use it because like who installs a custom compiler from someone you don't know that has no support, right? That is tangentially related to your CoffeeScript. It may not, you may not even be using CoffeeScript, you may be using JavaScript, right? That's a that's a lot of commitment for something that has almost no payoff, right? Which is kind of why the CoffeeScript creator said it in the first place, because he knew it wasn't like, he wouldn't have to, okay, it's, it's kind of like, you know, oh, go, go sweep all of England and then come back to me, right? It's just not going to happen. Um, that said, with Babel, I can publish an NPM package, have someone download it in five minutes. 
And then they are using an entirely new whatever in JavaScript in their code, and it affects no one. It's compatible with every other JavaScript pa package existing. Uh, and th that's it. That's you. That's that's a huge thing. I have to say, I do hate the nomenclature. <laughs> <laughs> the the adherence to needing to name everything after variations of coffee <laughs> in some way, shape, or form has driven me nuts. For yeah, years. it's pretty wild. I just need to throw. No, that I, out I there. agree. Um, <laughs> that, there's actually a coffee script too. I think at some point because people still use it, uh, and and they they completely. I think they completely rewrote their compiler. They may have actually done it in Babel. I don't actually know. I haven't paid attention. But uh, yeah, like it, it it it's a powerful tool that I would love to see in other languages. I would love to see competitors to Babel because it would mean that we we can experiment and grow our languages without having to wait for ECMAScript, you know, 2032, right, to launch its specification, all decided by major parties that we almost have no influence on. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's, let's talk about, like, the real... And, I mean, up, up till now, a lot of the benefits have been sort of baked into what we've already been saying, but... Let's sort of abstractly and, and simply talk about some of like the immediate benefits of including Babel in a build chain. First and foremost, I think one of the big things is it's going to force you to learn how to make a build chain of some kind, have a build process. A lot of folks, you know, the first JavaScript you write is going to be static flat file JavaScript. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you want to be a web developer, if you want to be any kind of like front end back end developer long term you're going to have to start thinking about how you bring in a lot of other code and so setting up a very simple build process will become intrinsic to making that be successful and once you have that including babel is relatively straightforward whether that's you know being baked into gulp being baked into grunt whatever you know your tool chain is all of this is well-documented and, and easy to find, and we'll have some stuff in the show notes about it. But I think, A, that's like the most basic way this is useful to you. But I think more than that, if you set up a very basic install of, of Babel in your build process, something very vanilla, very straightforward with the, you know, very minimum sort of uh, threshold of, of of hurdle to get over, you're able to support a lot of stuff without having to think about it. You're guaranteed, generally speaking, back to about IE11, you're covered. And IE11 makes up, I think it was like 0.4% of web traffic at this at this point. Nobody's really worrying about IE10 anymore or, or before that. So <laughs> I hope. <laughs> oh, maybe. I, I've I've forgotten about how much my reality was constantly distorted by the fact that IE existed at all. That's I, I'm very much glad that those years are behind us because like the, the late two thousands, early 2010s were just beastly. Yeah, it was pretty wild. And that's, that's, you know, it's, it's one of the benefits of tool like Babel is that it hides all of that pain. Like uh, your, your basic Babel setup of preset M, it can go look at your Google mm -hmm. analytics for your, the breakdown of your uh, browser usage and then generate based off of that. Uh, that's one of the plugins that you can get. Uh, the minify preset has a whole bunch of minification and performance improvements for your code that you just don't 
think about you generate the you generate the output and then it just happens to be faster. Uh, those just those alone can really improve your development experience. There's a whole list of um, Babel plugins that if you want to go check them out for yourself, um, it's called Awesome Babel. It's maintained by that same crew. Um, we'll have a link to that in the show notes, and it's kind of like their staple. Like these are the things that you know you should be paying attention to. I would say the Babel website is actually a better introduction to the plugins that are for production use. Awesome Babel is like is, Awesome Babel will show you some really crazy stuff that no, a likely doesn't work for the latest Babel, and b is just it's just weird. <laughs> Uh, if you want, like, like work level stuff to show a, a manager or or lead developer about, hey, we should be using this tool, uh, I would go to Babel Babel's website itself. Uh, it's inc- got great documentation, uh, showcasing everything down to the lowest detail. Shout uh, the FAQ and the troubleshooting is bar none, and the community itself is actually very friendly. You know, I I think that's worth a separate call out unto itself that. I've used a lot of libraries over the years and a lot of tools and a lot of just weird garbage, uh, you know, code and stuff from indie developers and, and folks who just threw a GitHub repo out that did the thing I needed it to do in the moment I needed it. The Babel website is really incredibly done. And I don't know if they have hired documentation people, technical writers or what have you, but if any of those folks happen to tune into this episode and hear this, I just want to give you a, a shout out and give you credit because it shows that they've put a lot of care into their documentation and they know a lot of people use this. A lot of people have questions about how to use this and they've put a lot of time and effort into answering those questions and having examples and things like that. So that's just, yeah, that's the, a, the, the Babel team, the ES Slint team, the types, uh, TypeScript team are all very, very close knit people. They're they're working on similar problems, right? Reading ASTs and doing so. There's a lot of like cross pollination there, uh, and as as you can see, the TypeScript website and the Babel website and the ES Slint website are just fantastic, right? Yeah, and one of the big benefits of Babel, as you've already kind of leaned into, is this idea that there's a plugin for everything because it's been around so long and it's it's so well known it it has benefited from this i you know the the wealth of resources out there it's kind of like wordpress it's it's the wordpress of that community that, that somebody has made a plugin to do the thing you need to do most likely my favorite I have to call this out a because i actually i i do genuinely like what it does but the name it's called Groundskeeper Willie. <laughs> oh. I I have to enjoy this, but I really do like what it does. And part of the role that it serves is and and now I'm I'm forgetting the the log of hitting my brain a little bit. I can't remember, Curtis, if you said you wrote a tool to do this or there was one you were using that that I think you built this that uh, like adds information to console. Oh, volume. I used one. I didn't. I didn't build it. Okay. Um, so there's that piece of it where you can write your console logs and get information about like the file that is generating that log, which is very nice. 
Um, you don't have to add stuff to it. You just write your normal console log. But what Groundskeeper Willie does that's, I think, really valuable is you throw, man, you're writing your development code, you're testing stuff out. Man, throw a console log every other line and make sure every single step of your process works. Its job is to take all of that out for your compiled code. So none of it's there. I can't tell you how many times I have left console logs in. Or you go through and you you leave them in there, but you comment them out, but all that console logging is left in your code. Having that ability to just write a ton of logging and have it all wiped out by your build process is so useful. It it cleans your code up. It shortens your code by significant amounts in some cases. I just... I don't, and it's called... Graphic <laughs> it's it's, it's nice. I mean, uh, <laughs> for... For any of us over the age of 30 at this point, I think that's a funny joke, so I'm, I'm taking it. Uh, I, I think my favorite is, uh, so if I, if I can't pick Taco Script, which is like a whole collection of them, um, which I genuinely hope people look at check out, uh, I would have to say the Pipeline Operator plugin. So in the next version of ECMAScript, uh, I think it's Tier 2 now, or Tier 1, which means it's like kind of generally accepted. Uh, there's going to be a pipeline operator for JavaScript, right? So uh, pipe this value into another value. It makes a lot of function calling change. So if you've ever gone like A, open parentheses, B, open parentheses, C, open parentheses, that's out of like nested, heavily nested code, pipeline operators make those a little bit. There's three proposals to the TC39 team, the people who run that script, like a proposal system. And they all have Babel plugins that you can just set up and install and start using immediately. And I love the pipeline operator. It's my favorite operator. If I had to pick a operator in a language, it sounds really weird and nerdy uh, to like. It's my favorite one because it just makes a lot of my code real clean. And you can just pipe it in <laughs> and immediately start using it. Uh, and it just cleans up so much code. Hmm. Um, the last, like, uh, as far as notes go, the last big thing I, I kind of threw in here is the thing I really love about a tool like Babel is it opens up your learning opportunities because it means you can always be writing the latest code and the latest standards as long as you make sure that you are writing supported code under whatever the latest uh, ES standard is you can be confident that Babel will rewrite that in a way that works for all the other browsers and what that does ultimately if you do this right, you don't do that blindly, which is to say you write your code and then look at what your output file looks like. Look at the way it rewrote your code because that will tell you a lot about how other things work and how other things interpret stuff. So understanding why your tool, you know, when you look at uh, a couple years ago when we were dealing a lot with like await, async, promise type stuff, looking at the way that Babel rewrote that code can teach you a lot about the way promises work and, and about the way asynchronous JavaScript works. So there's a huge learning opportunity, not just in, hey, I can write the newest things, I can go learn the, the latest standards, but I can also understand better how the old standards work so that I can just write good code. And I think that's really valuable. It is to me, anyway, as somebody that writes sucky code. A lot of these uh, <laughs> plugins will actually also do performance improvement stuff on, um, like, uh, Babel has a, a, minification program, a minification plugin that does performance. 
And you can just read that output and you can see some really cool stuff that's like, oh, I didn't know that I could do this uh, and it would be gen generally faster than what I was already doing. That reminds me of how a lot of C++ compilers will like optimize your the code that you write no matter how you choose to write it, it'll optimize down to the most, the fastest version of that code. Let me end with the hardest question. So as somebody who is an advocate of Babel and appreciates what it does and the features that it's gotten and what it brings to the table, why wouldn't you need it? What, what cases come up? Like to me, and I'm going to, I'm, I will say this as sort of the antagonist that, you know, when I look at Babel, one of the things I frequently think of, to go back to the jQuery analogy, is it's a tool whose job should be to eliminate its own need. And as we get better at, you know, feature queries in CSS or um, checking for, like, API avail availability in, in browsers, at some point it feels like maybe we won't need it anymore. Um, at least at a base level, I know like because the plugins can do so much and have such a wide base, maybe it's role changes over time, but what are the use cases where you could tell somebody, you know what, that's overkill sure. or you don't need that. A great example of this is just one off scripts. Don't need it. Uh, or incredibly simple, uh, JavaScript packages like the, uh, is even package or the is odd package, for example, they don't use it. They don't need it. If you're doing uh, stuff for a very specific uh, platform like uh, Electron, uh, where you know the Node version and the browser version that's going on, probably don't need it. Um, although, again, you're missing out on TypeScript, you're missing out on uh, uh, minification, right? Mm -hmm. I would say there instead of saying that there's that's that's from the user's perspective. From the language perspective, there is no end to Babel unless there's an end to the evolution of JavaScript, right? And even then, there are like 12 or 20 different Babel plugins for making uh, React more performant or doing things with React components, right? That are Babel plugins. So even if your language stops evolving, that doesn't mean you won't have libraries that come out that Babel can help with those things. So that hmm. said, I will reverse sort of like mutate the question here is like, there are times when languages are stifled from needing it, if that's the right word, right? Like, you you don't have to have a verdant garden. You can have a normal garden, right? It doesn't have to be overflowing, right? Uh, I think when a language is doing well, when it has tools for introspection, like AST uh, uh, readers, uh, then you get things like Babel eventually, anyways. So... JavaScript needs to run in a lot of places, right? And that gets hard to handle. Uh, and JavaScript itself moves, right? So now you've got this like heavy matrix of like, A, I'm running on servers, also browsers, and those browsers have old versions and any compatibility. And there's new stuff coming outward that packages will want to have. Right? So you need some tool like that. But if your targets are simple, like Ruby, Elixir, uh, Py uh, PHP Python. You just deploy into a server in a container. You have a very controlled environment. You may not evolve that tool because you don't have it. But I hmm. still think it's valuable for that language's ecosystem. And, and my advice would be 
deploy it when you are ready to deploy it, which is stupid and 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 cliche or or what have you. But start by just writing basic JavaScript. Start by you know getting yourself comfortable with flat file stuff. What usually will happen is once if you're ready to deploy like a build process type pipeline, then you're ready to also deploy Babel at that point. Um, if you are building a very simple site with limited use and it's it's just you, you're not doing it for work or anything like that, you're probably okay without it. You don't need to go overboard in those cases. If you want to learn, fantastic. Learn, by all means. God, bring it in in, in, in that case. But there is a lot of value to just saying, you know what, start out, write your flat file JavaScript, your simple stuff. By and large, you'll probably be okay. But once you have to deploy something at scale, once you care about versions, once you care about you know the ability to roll back, or you're dealing with anything that has to do with money, is maybe a, a good uh, sort of silo to put that in. When money is involved, compatibility is important. And so it doesn't cost you a lot to then throw this kind of tool into your build chain. So that's my advice. My advice is coming on the tail end of a bottle of Lagavulin 16. <laughs> I said I wouldn't kill this bottle. I have bad news for the bottle. <laughs> oh, no. Because I did, in fact, kill the bottle. And uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Folks, if you will sit tight, hear a word from our sponsor, we will be right back with you. The Drunken UX Podcast is brought to you by our friends at NewCloud. NewCloud is an industry-leading interactive map provider who has been building location-based solutions for organizations for a decade. Are you trying to find a simple solution to provide your users with an interactive map of your school, city, or business? Well, NewCloud's interactive map platform gives you the power to make and edit a custom interactive map in just minutes. They have a team of professional cartographers who specialize in map illustrations of many different styles and are ready to design an artistic rendering to fit your exact needs. One map serves all of your users' devices with responsive maps that are designed to scale and blend in seamlessly with your existing website. To request a demonstration or to view their portfolio, visit them online at newcloud.com slash drunkenux. That's nucloud.com slash drunkenux. Curtis, man, uh, normally this is where I say thanks for joining us and thanks for, you know, staying up late with us. But you're a West Coast guy, <laughs> dude. The sun is probably you, still out. Oh, absolutely. You are. are you in <laughs> North, Northwest or Southwest? Uh, I'm in Los Angeles. Okay, cool. I miss he's, California. He's, he's highfalutin California guy. <laughs> I'm, I'm Kansas, like... The biggest city I know of has a grain silo. I was born and raised in New Orleans. All right. <laughs> okay, no, that's fair. I've, yeah, I've been down there. Um, Curtis, man, thanks for staying with us. Um, we appreciate everything you brought to the table. And honestly, I kind of wish I had more time because it, it, it's so clear how deep your well goes. I want to dig <laughs> into some more of that. So I'm not saying I'm going to bring you back, but maybe we might bring you back to talk some more about some other languages and stuff. For now, what I want to do is tell you, you've got uh, 
whatever you want. Take your microphone and tell people where they can find you, what you got going on, and, and what you want them sure. to do. Sure, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, you can probably reach best reach me out to me if you want to talk to me on Twitter, uh, Greenbolt Green. I talk a lot. I talk a lot on Twitter though, so be forewarned if you follow, you will get a waterfall of tweets. But um, I really don't have anything to 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 pimp out. Uh, can I pimp out somebody else's something? This is your moment, man. You spend it how you want. Uh, there's a great new game that came out called Per Aspera. It's incredible. A beautiful game where you play as an AI terraforming Mars. Uh, that's Per Aspera. And it is, it is stunningly beautiful. There's a voice acted, uh, dialogue series where you grow as an AI to understand, you know, your role in terraforming. Uh, it's, it's, it's fantastic. It released, it's not expensive. It's like 30 bucks, I think. Uh, I wholeheartedly recommend it. Cool. I'll check that out. You should uh, come check us out after you look at Peraspera. Come check us out at Facebook and Twitter.com slash DrunkenUX and Instagiggles.com slash DrunkenUX Podcast. And come talk with us about Peraspera or Babel or Babelfish or Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy at DrunkenUX.com slash Discord. So many references. <laughs> so many could, ways these things all tie going. together. It's it, it no, don't please don't. Uh, Did you ever watch that that show Connections? I think it was on PBS. I, no, I don't think I saw that. They, they would I'm take, a bad like, geek. There's a lot of, like I've I've never read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> I, they uh they they the Connections show they would take two different really wildly different concepts like Mongolia and soccer. And then they would connect them through a series of like connections, and it was just like every single time it's like you just get your mind blown. Super cool. That that's easy because they just find a team where all the descendants are, or all the players are descendants of Genghis Khan. <laughs> I mean, that's that's easy at that point, folks. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I hope this was a good kickoff to season four. We got a lot more uh, lined up for you, and we're looking forward to bringing you. <laughs> A, a much more pleasant, lighthearted, and and easy to deal with 2021. Uh, that's the best I can hope to give you. And I hope that uh, you learned something about Babel. If there's anything that you're wondering about or would like to learn, feel free to reach out to us. Obviously, hit us on Discord. Hit up Curtis. Whatever we can do to help, we would love to teach you about. And the thing, there's always stuff to remember about these tools because there are so many of them. There's so many names to keep track of, and I know that can get a little bit, uh, you know, hard to manage, hard to juggle. And it's okay. It's okay if that's a lot. It's okay if that feels like you don't know what all these tools do. Let us know. Because there are always folks out there who are willing to help you learn those differences and how they line up and how they um, connect and and, and work together. Um, And when we work together, the most important thing is to always keep your personas close. And Aaron, (laughs) how does this end? I think I have to say, <laughs> fucker, users closer. Welcome to season four, folks. Welcome to 2021. We look forward to hearing you the rest of the season. Shit. Bye. Bye.